Digital 410 Productions proudly presents What's the Scuttlebutt Podcast with your host, Don Abernathy. Hey everybody and welcome to another episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt Podcast, your favorite World War II based podcast. And before we get on with this double-packed show... Uh, double packed, yes. That means we have two guests on today. Um, you know, one of the biggest faux pas you can make in terrestrial radio is to book two guests at the same time, promoting two different events at two different locations. However, this is a podcast. Not only are we not regional, not only are we not a statewide affair, not only are we not a nationwide affair, we are a worldwide affair. Therefore, we can get away with doing that. But before we bring those two guests on, and before I can uh, get my birds to shut up, I just need to get some little housekeeping out of the way. Real quick, first and foremost, this episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast is brought to you by our friends at Act Computers. Act Computers has been servicing all of Southwest Florida since 2004. They specialize in small businesses, veterinary clinics, medical clinics, and yes, they also do residential repair, laptop repair, tablet repair, etc. If you need some online backups, they can help you out with that. If you don't live in Southwest Florida, but you need your computer worked on, they can access your computer with your permission from their website, act-capecoral.com. If you need two-form authentication for your web-based applications, they can help you out there. Give them a call, 239-283-1120. Find them on Facebook at Act Computers and um, act-capecoral.com. Thank you so much, Act Computers, for your continued support of our podcast. Number two. Patreon, we have a Patreon link set up. Go to patreon.com forward slash D410 or simply go to WTSPWorldWar2.com. Click on the Patreon link. We have three tiers. Um, we understand not everybody has a lot of money to give away, so first tier is a dollar. It's a dollar a month. They will take one dollar a month out of your bank account. If you want to send us a dollar a month, we will love it and we will use it accordingly. The second plan is the OG5 plan. Ironically, that plan is $3.50. And the Deep Pockets Long Arm Plans is a whopping $7.50 a month. If you sign up for that plan after about two months, I will send you a t-shirt of your liking from our store. Um, I'll send you an email. You tell me what size, what color, what style, and it'll be yours. If you're an Amazon shopper, just go to d-410.com or wtspworldwar2.com. Click on the Amazon link. Save that in your um, toolbar. And the next time you shop on Amazon, it will not cost you an extra dime, nickel, quarter, or penny. And they will send some money my way to help keep our show afloat and to get better equipment and to continue to do cool things. And last but not least, if you're into the active lifestyle, your kids play sports, um, ride bikes, whatever, go to sleefs.com, S-L-E-E-F-S.com. Use the promo code D41040 at sign out and it'll save you 40%. And there you go. That's how you can support our show. And of course, you can also buy t-shirts at WTSPWorldWar2.com and give you guys a little secret. Type in the promo code ILISTEN, all capitals, all one word, and that'll save you like $5 on your t-shirt. Thanks so much and on with the show. So I think it's only appropriate that we gentlemen around here, the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, we're gentlemen. So because we're gentlemen, we're going to start the show off right. We're going to go ladies first. Coming to us from uh, Missouri is one and only Dixie Denaire. Dixie, how are we doing tonight? I'm doing fantastic. How about yourself? Not too bad. My dog's barking in the background, which makes for great podcasting, but we will get through that. Oh. <laughs> um, before we get to your event, which um, I was just doing a little research on, and it sounds like a great time, um, I want to get a little history on you and um, how you got into doing what you're doing today. 
and uh, which mm-hmm. is uh, burlesque shows. So how did you get started? Well, let's slow down a little bit. What do you do other than that, or what do you do in a professional sense that helps you to get to where you're going with that? Um, I'm kind of a uh, master of all trades, if you will. Uh, <laughs> um, currently, uh, my day job is taking care of children. So I do that, um, and that really allows me to have my uh, nights and weekends free mm-hmm. so I can perform sure. as much as I can. So uh, that's what I'm doing for, for the time being. Um, I continually go on auditions and set things up, and I actually will be out of town for a little bit this summer on an acting contract. So that's kind of my life. Uh, you know, I... <laughs> I say I'm a master of all trades because I work such a variety of jobs and different temp jobs and long-term day jobs to kind of feed my true passion in life. Well, you know, we're kind of lucky in 2019 that we have the ability to make money doing things that 20, 30 years ago people wouldn't consider a job. Well, A, 30 years ago we didn't have the internet and, you know, mm-hmm. so there's a lot of, a lot of new jobs that have been created. But, you know, back then they used to train us for the daily grind, get up, go to work to nine to five, come home, take care of the kids, sit around the house, maybe go fishing on the weekend or what have you. But now there are so many different ways to make extra money so that you can chase your dreams and to do the exciting things so that we can enjoy life a little more. I Yes, I agree wholeheartedly. Tell you what, I'm going to read the press release of your upcoming show and then we'll get a little further into uh, into your hobby and your passion. Okay. The monocle welcomes Dixie D's USO Jubilee, an immersive 1940s canteen on May 25th, 2019, for a thrilling night of vintage entertainment. Take a step back into the experience of the glamour, the glitz of the fabulous 1940s in this full immersive event. See the inspiration of entertainment like Bob Hope, the Andrews Sisters, Abbott and Costello, and more. Dixie Danier presents her USO Jubilee, paying homage to the canteens during World War II. Dixie has traveled around the country for eight years as a singer, actor, producing large-scale USO and camp shows at nationally recognized World War II events, and is now producing the show on a local level for the first time. Step into a world full with vintage-inspired entertainment from music, dancing, singing, comedy, burlesque, and more. This event strives to present 1940s USO entertainment in the most authentic way. The 1940s attire is strongly encouraged, and the Best Dress Award will be given out. Some displays, including a World War II Jeep, will be on location for the perfect photo opportunity. The Monocle will have a delicious, I'm sorry, a delicious USO-inspired drink special. Bars open at 6 p.m. The Emerald Room venue will open at 8. This immersive canteen kicks off at 9 p.m. up until 1 a.m. Tickets are $15 in advance, $20 at the door, and $15 at the door for all U.S. military veterans. How did you come up with this whole project? I mean, that alone, you have a huge uh, promise there of authentic- authenticity. <laughs> and I know we've had your husband on in the past. We know he's a reenactor, so you have access to, um, mm-hmm. to that side. And, of course, being around reenacting all the time, as stated in here, you do nationally recognized reenactments. So that definitely has to help mm-hmm. with the historical side, but that also... Because you know how we can be, that's got to add to the pressure of you to hit those authenticity standards. 
Uh, just a little bit, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I, I'll tell you what, I feel like I'm in a really good place with it. Sure. Um, I'm, I'm producing this show on a local level, as you read, and the thing is, is while I do have the background and I've done it for a while and, and I know my history and I know what's accurate and what's not, I'm working with a lot of local people who they're not reenactors. Mm-hmm. So I'm kind of doing double duty of not only producing this show, but also kind of educating my talent as we go through this. And um, they kind of, I'm, I'm by no means am I an expert on it, but they look to me like I am the expert, <laughs> you know, compared to them. But, um, you know, they'll, they're asking good questions and they're asking, well, you know, is this authentic? Can I wear this? Uh, what about that? And I'll just say, no, no, or yes, that's good. So I'm really, really striving for it to be as perfect as it can. Um, is it going to be 100% perfect? No, nothing is, but uh, we are definitely aiming for that. How did this concept, this idea come to you that you said to yourself, hey, I want to take what I did on a smaller scale at some of these reenactments that I've been to that have gone over quite well with the guys who do this on a regular basis, and I want to turn mm-hmm. this into, correct me if I'm wrong, this is your first standalone production that you've been in charge of, correct? Yes. Especially yes. on this scale. I've, right. Uh, I've had this idea brewing in the back of my mind for probably at least two years. Um, I've lived in St. Louis for now six years, and as you read, I've done performing at reenactments for uh, going on eight years now. And I always knew somewhere down the road I wanted to produce a local show, um, and I thought, it just the timing has to be right. And that seems to be the story of my life. The timing just had to work out. And 2019 came around and I said, okay, this is the year. This is the year I'm going to do it. I'm not going to put it off anymore. I keep talking about this and I'm just going to buckle down and produce the darn thing already. And <laughs> so it kind of just took off. I had a meeting in uh, January with the, uh, the Monocle, the venue, and the gal there. Uh, Laura, who's the manager, she immediately took to the idea. She fell in love with it. She says, I think this is a very cool concept. Nothing like this has ever been done. And so that was another selling point. I'm sure there's been things that have come through town, you know, that as far as like swing bands are concerned and things that kind of pay homage to the air. But as far as what I'm trying to do, we couldn't think of anything else like that that's been done here before. So we're really that in itself was exciting and she goes I think it's going to do really well in this space I think it's going to sell well um and just bring in new people and they're like she's like it's just so unique and so different and everyone I've talked to about it immediately gets excited they may not fully understand what it is and what might be happening but they're definitely and there's enthusiasm about it now, is your plan right now to have a one-off date, or is there a goal that if the turnout and the um, reception is as you hope it is, is there a potential for kind of a residency with this? That's my hope, yes. Um, <laughs> I tell myself, you know, i got to get through this first year first, see how this one goes, if it's successful and um, we feel good about it. I would love to continue this in the future. 
I even had that conversation with uh, uh, Laura, the manager at the Monocle, about, you know, if this one goes well, can we do it again? And, you know, she says, absolutely. But it kind of, I hate to be like, a lot is riding on this, but, you know, we have to see how well it's received. And oh, absolutely. You know, ultimate, ultimate dream is to um, move it into a bigger venue and maybe have it be for more than one night. Mm-hmm. one day <laughs> well at a certain point once you get this thing down in a well formatted template this is something that could possibly even be franchised out true it possibly could yeah i mean it's something that could definitely have a potential to tour and go other places um but I, I keep telling myself, I got to start small. And that's what we're doing. And I think we're, I'm trying to be very smart about it. My, my husband, as, as you know, you've spoken to him, he, uh, he keeps encouraging me like, you know, this is the first run. Mm -hmm. Let's, let's focus on this one. Let's not, let's not try and make plans for the future. Let's get through this first. And I'm like, yep, I know. I know. (laughs) Well, yeah. And there's nothing wrong with that, but just recently in my life, my life itself, um, I've become a big opponent or proponent, if you will, to um, short-term goals so that you can have the Mm long-term goal because you will never, ever achieve your long-term goal if you don't set short-term goals for yourself because how can you? It's physically impossible to achieve some large goal if you don't hit the milestones required to get there. And so absolutely, you got to set the short-term goals first. Opening night, see how it goes, book the second show, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, there's nothing wrong with having long-term goals. You just can't be obsessed with the goal line without making sure you get to the, you know, first yard line first. Absolutely. Let's back up just a little bit because I kind of, we dove in a little quick. How did this art form become part of your life? Did you start out doing ballet first? Did you do other forms of dance? What was it about this particular um venue of entertainment that really drew you into it? Um, Well, I've kind of been a performer most of my life. Um, When I was basically five years old is my mom put me in dance Mm -hmm. and uh, it just stuck. (laughs) And from there, I, I just always, you know, people usually entertainers talk about this a lot of how they've just known their whole life that they were meant to be on stage for lack of a better, sure. you know, description. But I knew and I knew that's what brought me happiness and I knew sharing that with other people is what I wanted to do. So I kinda grew up dancing my whole life and um I always had an interest in doing theater but I didn't really approach it until I got in college and then I studied it very intensively in college and got my training as an actor. And, uh, you know, many, many years later, here I am now with a full professional resume. I've, I've worked at a lot of different theaters. I've done a lot of different shows. Um, and from all that, then I discovered the world of burlesque. And that was something else that it kind of always intrigued me, but I didn't know much about it. And uh, I grew up in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And there's really nothing in Tennessee as far as burlesque is concerned. Well, absolutely not. Um, uh, 
especially well in Chattanooga, I should say, but uh, in Nashville and Knoxville and Atlanta, and I was kind of sandwiched like two hours from all those cities. Um, I found myself living briefly just north of Nashville, and when I lived there, I started to research it more and try to find places to take classes, and I found a studio. And then I basically went and started to learn the art of burlesque and tease. And uh, when I found myself moving to St. Louis to be with my husband, I found a very local, I uh, found a wonderful local um, school here and community and uh, continued classes there and then basically made my debut as Dixie Denier and then um, joined a troupe. And the rest is kind of history. Uh, I'm I perform on a pretty regular basis. I've traveled uh, many places. I haven't traveled uh, internationally yet. That's that's a goal for myself, you know, coming up that I'd like to fulfill. But I've gone as far as Alaska, gone down to Florida. Um, I've gone throughout the Midwest, and I've gone throughout the eastern side of the country. Is when you first got into it, um, did you find that there's a big misconception from the general public who's not familiar with the art of burlesque about burlesque in itself um, when people yes. hear about it? Because, <laughs> you know, the uninitiated, the uninformed just assume, well, it's just kind of stripping with feathers. Right. Uh, no, absolutely. People, um, usually people, if they, you know, they don't have a concept of what something is, they'll just kind of make something up in their mind of what it should be or what they think it is. And then when people actually come to burlesque shows and see what we're performing, they go, oh, wow, that's so different than what I initially thought it would be. Well, yes, I mean, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. Yes, there there is striptease involved. But um, I recently was out in Las Vegas, and I went to the Burlesque Hall of Fame and uh, toured it. And it was a fascinating place, and it has all the history of burlesque as an art form and explain to the public that, you know, burlesque was not what we think of it as today. There wasn't always uh, a stripping element to it. And and you don't even have to strip with burlesque. It's, um, you know, it kind of started out as this satirical uh, form of entertainment, you know, making fun of the wealthy and in Victorian society and uh, spoofing on that. And then it wasn't until the 1920s that people found that their audiences were getting somewhat bored. So they thought, how can we add to this? How can we get their interest engaged again, spice it up? And then they incorporated, oh, well, maybe if we incorporate a little striptease element to it, that might be well-received. And uh, that's kind of more the modern-day burlesque that we think of now. But... Um, I've been to so many festivals and so many shows that I think burlesque is kind of what you want to make it to be. <laughs> well, that was going to be my other question. Have you noticed, I'd say within the last 10 years or so, that it's kind of making a more of a um, accepted comeback, if you will, as far as, you know, just yeah. availability of shows and um, different cities and towns and not so much, you know, yeah. the Vegases and the New Yorks, but the smaller towns that maybe in the past something like that wouldn't have been have would have been hosted in. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there it's really been going on um I think there was like this revival that happened 
probably in the 90s. Um, I mean, her name gets mentioned a lot, and she's pretty mainstream, but most people have heard of Dita Von Tees, and she kind of helped along with several other people. I'm not giving her all the credit, but sure. <laughs> a lot of people helped kind of bring about this revival of burlesque and uh, the, the, the look and love of it. And then um, more people just started coming out and producing more festivals, allowing people more opportunity to travel and network and get to know people, you know. And um, now we have things like the Burlesque Hall of Fame weekend in June where they crown a new reigning queen and, and king and all different sorts of awards go out every year. And, you know, these are very coveted titles and people from around, it's not just the U.S., the world that are competing for these things. And, um, yeah, I absolutely think it is becoming more accepted and, uh, for lack of a better word, not so taboo to the public. (laughs) Now, would the Pussycat Dolls of 2004 fall into that category or was that something else entirely? (laughs) Um, I mean, ugh. Part of, I mean, I guess technically maybe, I don't know. I don't want anyone to listen to this and be like, oh, she's wrong. <laughs> but I guess it's all in your definition and how you view it. Sure. Um, I think there's definitely elements of burlesque in their performance. Um, I'm not sure if I would call that full out burlesque uh, per se. That's more, um, rather a more of a Madonna style stage show spinoff. That's how I I think I view it more, yes. (laughs) Well, one person that I was not really shocked, but a little surprised to find, and it's a good thing because she is still accepted widely on a national TV show and on a national chain known as the Discovery Channel format, and that is one Daniel Colby from American Pickers. I don't think a lot of people realize that she is heavily in burlesque, I know my brother's seen her once or twice, and I follow her on Instagram, mm-hmm. and she is unapologetic. She is so, you know, women power, and anytime anybody has remotely made an offhanded comment, she is not afraid to set them straight. And um, I was wondering, have you ever seen her show? Um, I mean, she's in Illinois, not I mean, Iowa, not too far from where you're at. Have you guys ever, has her, you know, performances have you been to them? Have they come through your town? Are you familiar with the work? Uh, sad to say, uh, no, I have not. <laughs> um, it's sometimes when you're a performer, it's hard to see other performers because you yourself are performing. Sure. And it can be difficult at times. Um, I've been very lucky. I can say I've been very lucky to to have seen the burlesque performers. I've seen in this country and um, that have headlined at festivals that I've been a part of. Um, There's a list that comes out every year that's like the top 50 burlesque performers in the world. And uh, it's pretty cool when you can say, oh, I have met or am friends with or have worked with people who are in like the number one and two positions. So, um, Dirty Martini comes to mind. Uh, she's someone who has been around burlesque for a very long time, and she uh, she toured with Dita. She's done so much for the world of burlesque, and I've been very lucky. I've been in three shows with her, and like 
that's not something every burlesque performer can cross off on their resume to say, I've shared the stage with these world-renowned, award-winning people who have toured all over the world doing this. Sure. Let's get back real quick to the Dixie D's USO Jubilee. Um, mm-hmm. Now, obviously, when, when you came up with this, is there kind of like a timeline, a format when people go, and obviously the uh, press release, you know, try to uh, encourage people to kind of immerse themselves by coming in, you know, the three-piece suit, the fedora, you know, all that stuff, the 40s-esque clothing um, is there kind of like a timeline about where the your full immersion show takes place? Are they, uh, you know, are we whisking them away to France and you're kind of doing a USO show overseas? What's the timeline or is it just kind of, hey, we're here, let's have fun? What can people expect when they show up? Um, so in, uh, in my mind, and this is how I'm, I'm approaching it with my entertainment and everything that's being shared at it, um, it's definitely geared more to World War II era. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I try, uh, whenever I perform at reenactments, I really try to pick music and do things that were like 1945 and before. So I've kind of tried to do that uh, with this show. Everything that's being, uh, all the music that's being used is World War II era music. Um, everyone that... Uh, is a part of it are showing up that's in my cast. Um, I'm trying to, I'm, I'm, I'm outsourcing them in things that, uh, you know, I would wear to a reenactment. Um, we're definitely trying to capture what the USO, uh, and USO canteens and entertainment was during the war years. So, uh, I mean, it might dabble a little bit into other, you know, parts of the forties, but, there's even, um, we're going to be showing, uh, we're going to have three shows uh, throughout the night. And in between each show, we're actually have a, a screen that will be on stage that will be coming down. And we're going to be showing um, footage from that time period of uh, like film trailers, um, newsreel, thing, movie newsreel. Uh, we have a couple of, uh, I have like a Daffy Duck cartoon from world war Mm -hmm. ii i have a um, private snafu cartoon i'm showing i have um some psas from the army that are almost hilarious uh a lot of the uh, std um, ones that i yes (laughs) we're showing that one later we're showing that one later in the night we're not gonna kick off with that no i mean you don't want to you want to keep people stimulated (laughs) and intrigued not concerned and bashful but all the newsreels I've picked um, uh, all relate to um, one's a D-Day newsreel. One's um, oh goodness, I, I just picked. I just finished selecting all these yesterday. There's about twenty to thirty videos. But um, I really tried to pick everything that was World War II. So that's definitely the vibe we are going for with this. And um, a fellow reenactor and my husband group the second rangers he's bringing his jeep down for the show and uh people are very excited about that and some people are like a jeep oh oh yay they (laughs) they don't really quite understand and they're excited so (laughs) well how many performers do you have on staff for the show um give me one minute i can count uh i think it's 12 
Yeah, I think it's right about, I think it's about 12. And that consists of singers. I have three women who are going to be singing um, music a la Andrew Sisters style. Mm-hmm. I have two guys that are going to be doing comedy like Alvin and Costello. I have two swing dancers who are very good that are going to perform. I have um, a variety performer. She does, um, she's a burlesque performer, but she's doing aerial work. Okay. um, Because that was kind of her uh, first thing she started in. Um, So she's actually just going to be performing up on her hoop in the air. Um, And then I have two actual burlesque performers. Um, And one of them, I, I always like to give a shout out to this person because one of the performers does a full Josephine Baker tribute act, which if anyone doesn't know Josephine Baker, they should. Um, not only she was from St. Louis, she was a prominent burlesque performer in the 1920s, um, had more success over in Europe than in the United States, but she went to France uh, before the war and then she ended up helping uh, the French resistance during the war. And then she ended up winning um, basically like the highest Legion of Honor medal a civilian can receive in France for her efforts during the war. So I like the connection there that it's like, not only does she, is she a performer, but she had some really cool history related to the war. And one of my performers does this very good um, act as a tribute to her. Sounds like a very well thought out formatted show. Um, now, I believe, as I said earlier, it goes from what, 9 until 1 a.m. or 10 until 1 a.m.? Uh, 9 p.m. to 1 a.m. And I know that's late for some people, but it's also the venue we're at. And they 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 would rather it go later than end earlier because there is a very upscale bar attached. So I understand. They're sure. like, we do later shows here. And I said, that's fine. We'll just do... We'll make an evening of it. Did this require you to extend the performance longer than you originally had anticipated? Or or, or are you guys putting intermissions in between? How are you making the length of the show work for you? We're doing um, multiple short uh, shows throughout the night. So um, when I first was planning this, I I thought I was going to do an early show and a late show, and they were going to be long. And then the more I thought about it, when I was told, well, you can have the whole venue for the evening because this venue typically likes to book early shows and late shows so they can get two different types of shows in mm-hmm. one night. But I was given the whole venue f- for all night long. So um, we thought, well, let's do shorter shows throughout the evening and then take breaks in between so people can get up, they can go to the bar, they can go outside, they they can mingle, they can watch things on the screen, they can go out to the Jeep, they can, you know, have that break and then they can come back for another show. So our shows are, we're trying to, uh, and I have a wonderful MC. He's going to be like my Bob Hope. Uh, Fantastic. <laughs> I told him, I said, you're, oh, thank you. Um, I said, your job as an MC is, you know, I said, not to put too much pressure on you. I said, not only do you have to, you know, host and entertain and have all that figured out i said but you also got to keep in mind the time the running time of each show i said because we're trying to have shows scheduled 
um, that run about no more than 45 minutes. And, uh, and then we'll take like a 30 minute break and then we'll come back for another one. So, and I have a feeling it's going to go pretty fast throughout the night. So if people want to buy tickets, they want to get more information. We're a week away. Um, it's next Saturday, Mm -hmm. May 25th. Um, if you guys are in the St. Louis area, you're willing to drive for a well, sounds like a damn good time. Um, if I was in, uh, the St. Louis area and if I wasn't going to be in Texas, I would definitely try to get out there. Um, where can people go to get the tickets, get more information, um, find out more about you? Where can they follow you? Where's your social media stuff? All that, all that good stuff. Get your plugs in there. Sure. Um, and I'm, I, I know several people down in Florida that I feel would very much love this show that are reenactors. So it's funny you say that. I'm like, uh, who knows? Maybe someone would come up. Uh, <laughs> uh, they can get tickets. Uh, the venue is called The Monocle. Uh, they have a Facebook page. I think it's the Monocle St. Louis. They also have a website. Uh, again, I think it's MonocleStLouis.com. Um, if you do a Google search, the Monocle St. Louis, it will pop up. Um, it will tell you everything going on there. Um, the ticket, the tickets are available on Eventbrite. So, um, all I know to tell you is, I, like, I can't link you to them through a podcast, but I can tell you to go on Eventbrite and type in Dixie D, and it pretty it will immediately pop up, and you'll know it's the right thing because you'll see the poster, you'll see a picture of my face, um, in the description. Yeah, it's not hard to uh, find. Just Google my, it. Um, I know most of you yeah, guys listening to this. <laughs> I know most of the guys listening to this subscribe on iTunes, so it automatically shows up on their phones. But as I said in the past, you oh, guys. Okay. Um, go to WTSPWorldWar2.com, click on the episode for this episode. Every episode I do, I always include photos, links to pertinent websites, usually the website of the author, or the website of the reenacting group, what have you. So if you are some of the people who subscribe on iTunes or Google Play Music or Stitcher, Spotify, all of them, and it automatically shows up on your phone, easiest way to get more information, yes, you can Google it, or simply go to WTSPWorldWar2.com. Click on Dixie's face, the page will come up, and all the information will be there. And um, I'll share your Instagram page, etc. Oh, yes, thank you. I was going to say, I, I always like to share my Instagram. Um, I have a Facebook fan page, but I will be honest, I don't moderate it enough and keep up with it. <laughs> um, I'm very active on Instagram, though. That's probably the most active social media account I have. Well, Dixie, thank you so much for your time. I'm sure your show is going to be a smashing success. And uh, when the next one gets booked, we will have you on to get the word out again. And I think it's fantastic what you're doing. And uh, good luck with everything. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And I'll uh, I'll let you know how it goes. <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. And uh, thank you so much. Thank you. Perhaps one of the craziest inventions to come out of World War II was that of Dr. Lytell S. Adams, a dentist from Philadelphia. Apparently at some point, Mr. Adams, or Dr. Adams for that matter, he took a trip down to New Mexico. And it was in New Mexico that he fell in love and was completely fascinated with the New Mexican free-tailed bat. And so when he was down in New Mexico, he saw their abilities, he saw the things they were doing in nature, um, how well they used their hands, and the objects that they were carrying in flight. And so Adams got this idea, if you will, that if he took these bats, got a large number of them, 
gave them essentially small bombs or grenades and dropped them over the cities of Japan that were predominantly made up of structures that were made from bamboo, wood, paper, things of that nature. Essentially, these towns, these cities were very flammable. And so Adam's got this crazy idea, well, why don't we get a gang load of these bats, a huge, huge number of these bats, essentially give them little bombs, drop them out of a plane, let them burn a city down, problem solved. And now, believe it or not, this crazy idea damn near came to fruition, and here's how it happened. On January 12, 1942, Adams wrote up a letter outlining his plan, and he sent it to the White House. And I know what you're thinking. Look, it's World War II. There's probably a lot of crazy people out in the country with ideas for weapons to defeat the Germans, to defeat the Nazis. And I'm sure the White House, the Army, the Air Corps, they were probably inundated with these letters. Here's how Dr. Adams got his through. Apparently, Dr. Adams knew and had a first-hand relationship with the First Lady of the United States, Eleanor Roosevelt. And so he contacted her, said, hey, I wrote up this letter. I want to send it to you. Please see that it gets seen. So she does. It did. And so President Roosevelt got Adams' letter. I don't know if how much Eleanor persuaded him, if he actually believed in the context of this letter, the content, the idea behind the idea. But he kind of gave it the initial green light. He contacted Adams and said, look, I'm going to set up a meeting with you and Colonel William J. Donovan, who was the head of wartime intelligence. Now, apparently, something in this meeting between Adams and Colonel Donovan worked out because the project went ahead as planned. I mean, it got greenlit. They started research and development. They went out and they collected a large number of Mexican free-tailed bats. Once they had all the bats acquired, they started developing small-scale bombs. At a certain point, through trial and error, research and development, the eggheads figured it out. They produced a 17-gram kerosene bomb that was built for the bats to carry and it was tied to their leg by a lanyard. Okay, so now we have our bats, they got their bombs, they got their grenades, whatever you want to call them. They're full of kerosene. We've got these flying little incendiary bats now. Cool. How do we deploy them? They went back to the drawing board, got the eggheads together, the engineers. And so what they did next was they built a larger bomb, but instead of a payload of dynamite, TNT, whatever you put in bombs, they filled this damn thing full of bats. And the bats had their kerosene bombs. The next problem was you had to figure out how are we going to transport this large bomb that was full of bats holding little bombs to drop on Japan and burn the whole damn place down. How do we get a bomb full of living animals from point A to point B? Apparently through technology and refrigeration and research. Bats, once they get to a certain body temperature, they go into hibernation mode. So the idea was let's take the bats, put them in the big bomb, holding their little bombs. Let's cool down the big bomb to put them in hibernation mode, strap the bomb to the plane, as they got closer to the target, they'd start to warm up the bomb, they would drop the bomb, the bomb would open up. The bats at this point are now coming out of hibernation mode. They'd fly down to the cities of Japan where they would instinctively nest in large rooftops, awnings, what have you. And then according to documentation, allegedly these little guys would chew through a lanyard at which point would activate a timed mechanism on these little hand grenades. They would fly the coop, if you will. Bombs would blow up. Houses burnt down, we win the war. That was the idea. And it got greenlit, and it did in fact go into research and development, and they were actually working on this plan up until mid-1944, when all efforts of the plan for the bat bomb were now stopped, and all resources and scientists, manpower, was sent into the Manhattan Project to help develop the atomic bomb. So that was the brief history of the bat bomb. A crazy idea that a dentist had somewhere in New Mexico, but the fact that they actually put money in research and development makes it even crazier. And that has been Crazy Ideas from World War II.
And joining us next on our two guest episode, he is a member of the Tri-State Living History Association, Mr. Byron Cookie Vineyard. Byron, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing great, doing great. Well, I appreciate you joining us. Now, you and I, we are going to have the opportunity to meet in person here coming up in Fredericksburg, Texas at the um, National Museum of the Pacific War on May 25th and 26th for their Living History Weekend. One of the things I like to do anytime I bring a new guest onto the podcast is to get a little back on history onto them, what they do for a living, how they got into living history, and then where they're at today with their living history. So let's back up a little bit. Um, what, do you, what do you do in your professional life, and how did you get into living history? Well, I worked mine construction, worked in the coal mine for a few years. And around 1983, I had the opportunity to buy a chimney sweep business off a friend of mine that was didn't he just wasn't cut out for it. So I bought the business sight unseen. And so here we are. I'm in my 35th year in the business, getting ready to... Uh, sell it and, and retire. And uh, as far as the World War II, my oldest son, Lucas, uh, federal police officer, uh, he actually got started when he was in eighth grade. He loved history, especially World War II. And then when he was in the National Guard right around 9-11, uh, was sent to a high security detail in Germany. Long story short, I started ordering some World War II things for him because he was going to join a, a unit when he came back to the state. So that got me interested. So in 2002, I went to a 506 reunion at uh, Decoa, and that's where the Band of Brothers were started. It was mm-hmm. in, the, in uh, Decoa, Georgia, Currahee Mountain. And so that I really caught the bug then because we were around the Airborne Unit. And that's our first unit was, well, everybody does Easy Company 506. Sure. That, you throw a rock, you're going to hit five units that portrays 506 yep. or an airborne unit. And so um, I was doing the infantry. Well, at that time, I was uh, I would have been around 52 years of age. So I'm out there tripping around with uh, airborne boots, a Garand rifle, steel pot on my head, all the gear. And I'm telling the boys, boys, this is not for me. And so my youngest son, Brandon, who works at the Pacific Museum in Fredericksburg, he said, well, Dave, you love to cook, so why don't you do a cook's impression? Well, here we are 18 years later and several, several thousands of dollars. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, put the, I put together probably, and, and I'll pat myself on the back, I probably got one of the most authentic working field kitchens in the United States, well, bar let, none. Well, let's talk about that real quick. Where does one start to go down that rabbit hole to acquire this stuff because obviously like you said everybody and their grandmother when they first get started a lot of the guys do the airborne we all know about you know what price glory about world war ii impressions at the front and all that but how do you go about on this venture to find either reproduction or authentic (laughs) field kitchen stuff because not too many people do it so there's not a high demand for reproduction stuff there 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 isn't don and i'll tell you We'd have to do two or three more podcasts, buddy. I mean, it was hunt and peck. People found out about when I first started, I had very little gear. A lot of it was uh, propane, uh, like you had for a fish fry or a turkey fry. I was using that stuff. We were washing dishes out of Tupperware, um, just odds and ends. And then I just said, no, if we're going to do this, let's do it for 100% authenticity. We owe that to the veterans. We owe it to the younger generations. If you're going to, and, and this is where I, I separate myself from a lot of reenactors, if people are going to do this 
why are you doing it? Are you doing it to impress somebody? Are you doing it because uh, your friends are doing it? Are you doing it because you have a deep burning passion to keep the history alive for our World War II vets? Because in a few years, Don, you're not going to see a World War II vet. I understand. And it's up to us to keep their stories that we've collected over the years, to keep their memory and as much original gear working as we can to pass that on to future generations or it'll be lost. We, we've got a, a large responsibility on our shoulders, and when that last veteran's gone, it'll really be a, a, a responsibility to tell the story at the most accurate possible way we can with our impression of a field kitchen. Well, and, and not only so, the field kitchen, but everything in general. But and everything, everything. You know, I never. We strive. I, I never made this equation before, and as you're you're talking, which was very well said, um, and I know you'll understand what I'm about to say. Um, I remember when we were in school, and they were talking about how rumors would spread, and and the way they would demonstrate that was we'd play the telephone game. One person was told a fact. He had whispered in the person's ear yeah. next to him and around the classroom. And by the time the last person got it, the fact was completely distorted. Well, we're kind of doing right. the same thing in living history. We're reading books. We're getting facts from veterans. They're told to me. I tell it on a weekend. Some Another living hist- historian hears that he tells it. We have got to try to keep that authentic so that when the fifth hundredth person tells it, the fact's still there. We, we we need to make sure we're not playing a giant history version of the telephone game where everything gets distorted. Well, and that's true. And and uh, I've gotten in uh, some pretty good arguments with uh, other reenactors because, and, and reenactors can take this for what it's worth, and I'm going to say it because this is my passion and I live for the, uh, for the field kitchen is, if you're going to do it, you strive for a hundred percent. And we know because we, we call ourselves living historians. And the reason I say living historians, instead of using the word reenactor, a reenactor to some degree, and it's a, a, a large group of them will only take their impression only so far. And that's where it stops. They don't do research every day. Like we do. They only live from one reenactment to another one where we live at 365 days a year. We're constantly researching photos, manuals, videos from World War II. Uh, we talk to the veterans that were cooks in World War II. Uh, we get their pictures, their stories. We read anything that we can get on the mess halls and the supplies for the food. And we make our own labels. We make our a lot of the stuff we, we make ourselves. And so to me, we strive for a hundred percent knowing that we never probably will get to an exact hundred percent, but we're always striving because when you stop striving for a hundred percent, you start going backwards Absolutely. in your impression. In other words, you'll show up at an event. Oh, well, I forgot this. Well, that's okay. Well, I don't have the right thread for my buttons. Well, that, who's going to notice the thread? We do. We get the right thread to sew our buttons on our uniform. That's why they call you a stitch Nazi. And to me, when you're called a stitch Nazi, I take that as a compliment because that means I'm still striving for 
and I'm at probably 92, 93%, where a lot of reenactors will stop at 70%. When I started in around 2002, 2003, nobody was doing the field kitchen impression. Nobody. I think the biggest and photo so, I had ever seen of one is uh, that comes out of the D-Day reenactment up in Ohio. I've only seen photos. That's the only place I've really seen one erected anywhere. Yeah, there's a couple out there that's good. Mine is when I found the gear, none of it worked, and there was nobody to show me how to repair it. There was nobody to show me how to restore it. So I start reading on how to do sandblasting. So I've got my own sandblaster and soda blaster. So then I find I go to body shops and find out what's the best thing to remove rust or repair this. Uh, and I'm a welder, so I've welded a lot of stuff. Uh I'm a painting a pro. I've got my own uh, big compressor and spray guns, and uh, so our, pa- our paints are g- good reproduction paints for that era. When you media blast that, are you using walnut or using cork? I mean, because obviously some of that media is a little too rough on it, and you don't want to create more yeah. holes than you already cork, have. Uh, a walnut shell under the right pressure. I always test a little area. Uh, it's kind of out of sight before I go full tilt and I set my pressure gauges, you know, but I use that. And then on like, cause I restore uh, helmet liners. I put in a new webbing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can paint and cork a helmet just like a professional. Um, Josh Murray, Jay Murray. Yep. We've had uh, him on the show. Does. Okay. Jay Murray, buddy, that man, he is my go-to guy. Uh, I feed Josh out of my field kitchen when he's at Rockford, Illinois for the big battle weekend in September up in Rockford. We became real good friends. Oh God, years and years ago. And he couldn't leave his, uh, uh, space because a lot of times he was by himself. So after my troops ate, I would always take a mess kit loaded down with food and a big thing of coffee and take over to him. I say, well, when you get done, just clean the mess kit and bring it back over after everybody's gone tonight. And I'll bring it back over for breakfast. So, sure. so he never had to. So he's always uh, helped me because he knows that I'm doing it just for our guys. And, you know, I don't do anything for resale. If I'm doing a helmet liner, it's for one of our new guys or for myself because I've got two or three helmets, different impressions and stuff. So I can do I can redo helmets, you know, and stuff. But I'm just taught it's self-taught on, on restoring the field kitchen gear. And as far as finding it, Don, oh, my God. I don't pass up a flea market. I don't pass up an antique mall. Uh, somebody will call and say, man, so-and-so said that they saw something out in the barn that looks like a mermite or a mermite wow. insert or a pot or something. And I've had people actually buy stuff at an antique mall up north, and they come back down home and they say, hey, Byron, we found this, and uh, you can have it at cost, you know, sure. whatever it is. Go and look at it if you can use it. I make sure it's war dated, and I'll say, "Yeah, I can use that." And so I've gotten, I've having stuff given. I've had stuff given to me. People said, "We just want, we know that you'll keep it, you'll appreciate it, and you'll take care of it for the rest of your life." So we want you to have it because we know it's got a good home. <laughs> in your experience, have you resulted into shipping stuff back from overseas because a lot of it was left there? No, a few things like maybe pamphlets, small items that were shipped fairly inexpensive. 
if you go for the big stuff like a war dated immersion heater, it would cost you mm-hmm. an arm and a leg and a stove, an M thirty an M nineteen thirty seven range stove with burner and pots and pans. I wouldn't even want to venture on what that would cost to get it back to the States. And it's probably going to be painted green, which means it has to be, if you're going to be authentic, all of that paint has to come off. And it had a hardening agent for heat resistant. And I stripped, I've stripped four of them with sandblasters and it likes to kill me. I mean, it wow. takes a lot of work to get that green paint off of a 37 rain stove. It's work. I can it imagine. It's work. Yeah. Yeah. So, so when it, when it comes to let's say somebody wants to try to get into the field kitchen, um, if you're just trying to get the basics down, what are the key components that you need just for the smallest, you know, smallest defined field kitchen to feed just you know a platoon or whatever? Just if somebody's trying to just to get one started for their group. Well, I would say you could start out like I did with stuff that that isn't from that era. But, but always be out there hunting, going on different websites on their, uh, where you can post a question or say, hey, I'm looking for a Mermite, uh, eBay. But see, I bought a lot of my stuff. I was lucky. I found a lot of stuff at antique malls back in uh, 2004, 5, 6, and 7 because nobody was buying it. Nobody knew what the real cost was. So I was picking up a mermite like for fifty dollars. Well, now a good mermite in good shape will bring two hundred seventy-five to three hundred and fifty dollars. And if you throw in the inserts, those inserts now can bring as much as sixty or sixty-five dollars for an insert. And I was paying twenty-five for an insert. Now, for those of you listening who aren't familiar with what a mermite is exactly, it's kind of like a large, uh, stubby thermos, if you will. Um, you know, a heavy round. Thermos. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. And when it's you, a big thermos. And when you say insert, they basically have like a stainless steel pot with a lid that you could fit, what, two or three of them per mermite? Most of them were aluminum. Some of them were tin. Um, they were uh, a lid with three clips on the side. The clips held the lid on, and there were three in a mermite. Now, in the war... Uh, they used them for two, one for food and then one in the field hospitals for plasma. Huh. And you could tell a me- you could tell a medical mermite because the lid was painted white and it had about a two inch white band at the base. And buddy, if it was painted white, they better never, ever catch a cook using it yeah. because you could just about be shot because that was for plasma and plasma and medical pe- personnel only. If it was solid green, a lot of times they had their uh, uh, division on there or their battalion numbers or whatever was stenciled on it so they knew what unit that mermite belonged to. The cooks, what they would do is uh, they would fill them from the water in their garbage cans from the emergency heaters. They would put hot water in them, let those get hot, and then they would put the inserts in hot water and let them get hot. Then they would put the steaming hot food in there, lock them down, put them in a mermite, and ship them to wherever they were going to ship and feed the troops. And that's how they kept the food hot. Now, we use ours a few times in the field for taking food out to the boys on the front line in the foxholes, but mostly we use them for cold storage. Mm -hmm. And what we do is we'll take two of those inserts, put water in it, and freeze it, 
and then we'll put food in one and sandwich it between the ice blocks. And hell, I keep food cold for four or five days. Nice. Now, I assume with the technology so of the time that the primary source of insulation is is probably asbestos? I think it was some type of, I found one at a, an Army Depot down in um, Knoxville, Kentucky, at an old Army Depot. And I first thought, man, this is a fine. Well, I turned it around, and it had been left out in the rain, and one whole side was rusted out. And it looked like a fiberglass, a white-spun fiberglass is what it looked like. Huh. But what happened, we're losing the insulation property because what happens over the years, that breaks down, and it falls and settles towards the bottom. So your bottom is well insulated, but the upper part and the lid, Uh. the insulation is starting to deteriorate. So it doesn't have the same insulation property it did back in the, uh, during the war in the 40s. And there's probably really no way to fix that without compromising the casing on the mermaid itself. Well, I've done one, and I, I made a mess of it. I, what I was using was a foam, and it didn't get all the way down in there, and I had air pockets. What I did is I drilled a hole in the bottom, turned it upside down, drilled a hole, got a Sawzall blade started, and I just cut out a nice circle. Then you'll see the insulation. Well, I pushed it all the way down to the top of the insert, and now if I do another one, I'm going to use a good R-factor insulation, and I'll just pack it as tight as I can. Then I'll put the uh, base back in there, tack weld it, and then I'll weld it back in, and then I'll grind it back smooth so it'll be hard to tell that I've compromised it. Plus, the bottom's on the ground anyway. You're never going to see the base, the underneath side of a mermite. Well, let me ask you this. Since obviously no one's going to see the inside, wouldn't a decent solution to fill in the air pockets uh, use an expanding foam? Well, that's what I did Okay. the first time. And I even tried to use a nozzle to squirt the foam. Well, that foam expands so mm-hmm. fast, and you create little air pockets, so you don't have 100% packed insulation. I got so. You. Uh, I, that first one I did, I thought, Matt, this is not the way to go. So now I'm thinking this summer or in the fall, I'm going to go back and do another one, one of my older ones that's kind of beat up, and I'm going to cut the bottom out, and I'll get an, I'll do some research and find out the best insulation that I can put in there, and I'll pack it tight, then put the lid back on and uh, tack her back in there. Let's talk menu so, options, because we know a lot of people think yeah. that Field Kitchens is nothing more than shit on shingles and some black coffee. But uh, people would be surprised what all you can cook in that field stove. Because I was looking at your website, and I was looking at a a video that you posted, and a few of the links. And one of those links included um, some copies from the original field manual of what all can be cooked in those things. And I think people would be surprised what luxury items a a well, um, let's say, skilled uh, cookie who had... uh, you know, access to some decent ingredients could come up with. Oh yeah, the the cooks in World War Two they were they were uh, a character all in their own. Of course, you had the 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 K rations. You know, you ate out of a box, mm-hmm. and those always came to the troops. Then you had the five and one and the ten and one, pretty straightforward. Uh, then you had other stuff shipped from the states, uh, stews. Uh, a lot of it was dehydrated in powder form or dehydrated potatoes, meats, 
uh, your chipped beef was dehydrated. Uh, so you had just a, a hodgepodge of stuff coming from the States. But if a cook could land himself with some fresh beef from a village, uh, eggs, uh, flour from a flour mill, uh, if he could get his hands on it, he fixed it for the troops. Fresh uh, produce, vegetables, fruits. He was always looking for something out of the ordinary, and that just boosted the morale of the men in his company. Okay, so they were always looking for different ways and, and scrounging for different things that they could fix. But in 37, uh, 1937 stove like mine, you can do you can cook anything in the field that you can cook in your house, barring any refrigeration. Now we have refrigeration because we use the mermites. So, but I stick with the World War II cookbook. I've got a hardback copy that the cooks used when they went to cook school. Then you have the little manual, the field manual, paperback, but it's got all the recipes. It's just condensed. So anything I cook in the field for my men comes out of a World War II cookbook. Now, um, when it comes to you and when you guys are doing your reenactments and you know, the living history events, obviously you kind of condense your menu options because one, you got to buy all the stuff. Two, you got to pack it across state lines, and three, yeah. um, you're trying to keep it simple, stupid. So, what is your go-to menu items for, let's just say, a Saturday and Sunday event? Uh, well, we do. Uh... I always get, like I was talking earlier, I buy uh, eggs from a farmer, but I don't have him clean them. And this is what a lot of people don't know. If you don't wash an egg uh, right out of the nest, the chicken nest, you can put it in a crate, a box, pat it, and that egg will stay good for up to three weeks. As long as you don't put it out in real hot sun or in sunlight, we always cover, keep them underneath our mess fly or keep them in a tent. Uh, to where sunlight doesn't hit them, and we've used eggs four and five days in the field, and we don't clean them until we're just ready to uh, use them for whatever baking. Uh, so one of my go-to things in the morning is we'll do uh, we'll make up biscuit dough, we'll bake biscuits, big pot of SOS, big pot of coffee, uh, and scrambled eggs. You were telling me before you came on that uh, right now, because you're preparing for the, uh, next weekend. You currently have 24 dozen of these eggs sitting in your house. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just yeah. trying to picture where one keeps 24 dozen fresh, unwashed eggs. Now, answer me this. I, I've been getting into a show called Somebody Feed Phil on Netflix. And Phil Rosenthal, he's the head writer. He created the show Everyone Loves Raymond. And he's a big foodie yeah. and he travels all around the world. And he eats all this immaculate food. And the thing I started to notice at all these high-end restaurants, all the eggs were brown. Um, Is there a difference between the white eggs I buy at my grocery store and brown, quote-unquote, farm-fresh eggs? Or is that just because the uh, chicken farms that distribute to the, you know, the... the Yeah, I'll tell you... Don, I, I couldn't give you a professional answer, but almost all my eggs are brown. I don't know if because of their diet and because they're allowed to scratch around out there in the uh, chicken yard or just what, but almost. Now, I've gotten some white. I mean, it might be the breed of chicken. There's a chicken that lays a pastel egg. Huh. 
I've got one farmer that I get eggs from, and one egg will be a light blue, one will be a light pink, one will be a light yellow, and then a white. It looks like uh, Easter time. That's insane. You know? So it just depends on the breed of chicken. But I'll tell you, I've been cooking since I was I'm 69, and I've been cooking since I was three years old. And if you're going to be serious about baking or cooking, buddy, you don't be a, a fresh country egg uh, cookies cakes pies any restaurant any recipe that calls for an egg if it's not farm fresh i don't use it i won't bake until i get a farm fresh egg those things in the store i call them artificial eggs yeah because i was just wondering like why why are they all well, why are all the eggs i buy white but you know i think you probably hit on it when it comes to the diet um yeah it is it is and and they're allowed to get out there and scratch around and eat bugs and everything else. And a yolk, a store bought yolk is kind of a pale yellow, a, a, an anemic yellow. And my yolks are almost blood orange, and that is a fresh egg. And you can taste the difference in my biscuits. You can take the difference in my cornbread muffins because I bake. Uh, I've got twelve uh, war dated muffin tins, and I break. I bake. Uh, cornbread muffins uh, from that. If you're down there that weekend in Texas, oh, I'm, you'll I'm taste there. my cornbread muffins. Well, it's interesting and you say food. that because I noticed that on that show as well whenever they were poaching these eggs or they'd make hard-boiled eggs that, yes, the yolk looks like it was an orange color. And instinctively, yeah. if you've never seen that, you must think, is that egg bad? Yeah. But clearly it's not bad. It's the opposite well, of bad. It's yeah. super, it's like organic as you it's possibly best, get. It's the best organic egg known to man. Yeah. The, the chickens don't get hormone shots. They don't get this. They don't get stuff put in their feed. They eat cracked corn, uh, some supplements that they need for their diet, uh, oyster shells for their crawl. That helps produce a good, thick uh, shell because some of those ones in the store, you just breathe on them and the egg will crack. Mm-hmm. My eggs, I, I'm, I'm pretty hard on my eggs, and I've never cracked one by accident. Nice. Well, I want to transition away from the field kitchen here a little bit because, once again, earlier today when I was talking to you off the air, um, you're telling me about something cool that the Tri-State Living History Association is doing. And you brought up a little piece of history that I wasn't aware of. I mean, it kind of makes sense, but you guys are actually kind of working on a, a cool little project to bring the light to the contribution, if you will, of the everyday jackass to World War II. Yeah, the pack mules. Yeah, yes, yeah. So give me a little insight on that. Well, it'll probably be next year because our main impression right now is the 34th Infantry Infantry Division. The Red Bull, Mm -hmm. if you've seen the patch with the the skull of a bull and it's red, okay, that's 34th. They also fought with the Japanese-American units uh, in Italy. Uh, all the way from the tip, all the way through Italy, all the way up. And they, they, those boys were experts at pack mules. Uh, I've got a picture somewhere in my archives of a recoilless rifle mounted on top of a mule. The rifle is almost as long as the mule is. Wow. And plus the recoilless rifle, he that mule was carrying about four or five rounds of ammunition for the recorder's rifle three on each side plus the recorder's rifle i've seen mortars 
I've even seen an immersion heater that was broken down huh. for heating hot water in the garbage can. Sure. They were taking it up to set up a field kitchen somewhere uh, where they couldn't get a Jeep or a truck, and I've seen the gas tank and part of an emergency heater. Uh, the stoves, uh, the food, the ammunition, mortars, uh, 30 cal, 50 cal, you name it, the pack mule carried it in, for the 34th. Yeah, because when people think World War II and they think um, work animal, they think the Germans. Yeah, yeah. But once again, when you're in Italy... Or you're in rough terrain up in the mountains, or you know, once again, yeah. places where a Jeep, a Harley, or you know, anything else can't get. You gotta, re- you gotta go back to your roots. You gotta go back to what, to what works. Yeah. And, yeah. They didn't use the. The Americans supplied some mules, but where we got our mules uh, was when uh, Italy surrendered. The Alpini soldiers, the Italian mountain soldiers, they used pack mules. So we got a lot of their mules. Anytime we captured German positions, we used their horses. Or if they had mules, we used them, plus the American mules. So there was a hodgepodge of uh, mules, and they put the saw bucks on them. And the key thing on pack mules is you had to balance the weight. You had to put the, the saw bucks on correctly with all the strapping. So if you were going downhill, the, the pack wouldn't slide forward on the neck. If you were going uphill, it wouldn't slide off his butt. <laughs> so it, there, there's an art to packing a mule. And that's what we're going to learn from this lady out in uh, Pennsylvania between now and next October. And that's when we're trying to shoot for a date and going out and spending a week uh, packing, lashing, going out in the field, digging the foxholes. We'll set the field kitchen up in the rear. And we'll bring the mules in and we'll load the mermites with hot food and coffee because what they would do, they would send coffee in a in a mermite. They would just take the inserts out and fill it with five gallons of coffee. So anything the boys eat in the field hot will be shipped to them on the mules. And we're going to videotape it. It'll be on our website. Uh, it'll be after October, but we'll edit the, the film just like our field kitchen video and people will actually learn what was involved in packing gear in and out. Plus, the mules would carry out uh, the wounded or the dead. They would put them in a bag, put the body across the mules, and the mules would carry out the wounded or the dead out of battle. Sure. And that website, for those of you listening, especially anyone who lives in the uh, tri-state region over there, Illinois, Missouri, Kentucky, um, and you want to find more information, go to TSIHA.org. Now, that sounds like a lot to remember, but it's very simple. It's the first initial of every word of Tri-State Living History Association. So, TSIHA.org. Um, as Baron just alluded to, they do have a great uh, set of videos on there. they got some great content on their website. They have uh, links to their Facebook page, their Instagram page. And you just recently, when I became aware of you, uh, your son sent me a video you guys had just posted. I don't know. I think at the time it was maybe two or three weeks ago. But you were telling me today that that video has gotten wind. It's caught fire. And the views on this thing (laughs) is blowing up. And you're kind of scratching your head like, what's going on? But obviously that's a great thing. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, um, I think right now I haven't checked it today, but 
the last time I checked YouTube, because it's out there on YouTube also, if, if somebody can't remember our, our, our website, if you just went to YouTube and typed in World War II Army Field Kitchen, you'll scroll down and then you'll see our logo, which is a triangle. And then that triangle is the Bible, a cross, and a helmet. And it'll say Tri-State Living History Association. You click on that video and the Army Field Kitchen, will, my, my field kitchen will be in the video. There's a few Germans and a couple other ones, but the Tri-State will be, you'll see the logo uh, on YouTube. And that's where we noticed that right now I think we're, well, when I was out in D.C., I came back last Thursday uh, we were at 330,000 views and I, it's probably up since then. That's amazing. Congratulations on yeah. that. Yeah. Because, because a month or so ago we were in the low thousands. I don't even know where we'd hit a thousand or maybe two or 3000, something like that. And it seems like within the last few weeks, man, it's, it's gone up to 330,000 something. Now you guys got to shoot more videos. You got to get, got to catch that wave while you're riding high. That's what we're going to be doing. We're going to do um, short videos. I'll show. I'll break down the M30, uh, M37 uh, rain stove. I'll show how because we a lot of guys, and this is where I fight with a lot of reenactors. They'll take an M37 rain stove, a piece of history. They will drill a hole in the back, uh-huh. and a guy that used to call himself uh, something cook something years ago, he did a video and showed how showed everybody how to take a burner, strip all that beautiful craftsmanship off the burner except for the pod where your flame is, put a orifice in the front, hook it up to a rubber hose, and on the back of your rain stove out of sight in a wooden crate would be a damn propane tank. And they're cooking with propane. They said, man, look at my kitchen. Well, I I, I ran one guy out of my kitchen about eight years ago. Because he was telling me how he cooked with propane, and I said, "You get the hell out of my kitchen right now! Don't, I don't want to ever see you again." Because you just demolished a piece of history, and you don't have the gumption to learn how to use it safely. Well, it's that gasoline wasn't safe. No, it was safe, son. If you keep your gear operational and clean, and you learn how to operate it like the army tells you to. You don't have a problem. Same way with the immersion heaters. Oh, they blow up. Yeah, they'll blow up if you don't take care of them. And if you're grab-assing or talking to somebody while you're lighting one, yeah, it'll it'll bite you. And, so and I know why, because I've been bitten a couple times by them immersion heaters. I've lost my eyebrows. I've lost a hair on my arm. I burnt my nose. And it was because I didn't have my mind on what I was doing. And so, for those who didn't catch that, um, the original field equipment <laughs> ran off of gasoline. This isn't Hank Hill. This isn't, this isn't propane and propane accessories. This is good old no. American gasoline, or fuel, if you will. Yes, yes. I don't get very good gas mileage in the weekend, on a big weekend, where we've got a lot of mouths to feed. I do a lot of baking, and plus I've got four immersion heaters all war-dated in the old garbage cans, uh, I'll go through 20 to 25 gallons of gasoline and I get zero miles to the gallon. None of my stuff moves from Wednesday till Sunday, (laughs) but I go through 25 gallons of gasoline. You're making (laughs) Al Gore cry. 
Speaking of which, do you actually use original trash cans, or you go out and buy you know modern day trash cans for your immersion heaters? No, you can. That's what I was getting ready to tell you. You can't use a modern can because they're tapered and they're thin, galvanized, and they just can't support the weight of an immersion heater. Plus, you won't get it down in there. The base, what we call the donut, won't fit. So we have actually found. Cans. The forestry department, if somebody is around, somebody that run the old state parks, federal parks, uh, uh, forestry departments had them. But you'll, they're straight from top to bottom. And there was a company in Cincinnati, Ohio. I can't think of the name right now. Their name will be stenciled in the bottom as well as the lid. But there was a big, heavy steel ring riveted around the bottom and around the top and that will support the weight because you have to clamp that immersion heater on the top because that holds your saddle for your uh, fuel tank as well as your stove pipe your vent pipe so it, it holds a lot of weight so you can't use anything like from an ace hardware store or tractor supply they don't work they don't work and that just goes to show the amount of passion that you have for this particular uh, realm of World War II because not only no one's making reproduction kitchen equipment, at least nothing worth buying, but no one's making reproduction trash cans. And so not only are you trying to find <laughs> no. field kitchens no. yeah. and you know uh, war-dated muffin tins, but you're scouring all of God's yeah. green earth trying to find 75-year-old trash cans. They yeah. haven't been shot full the of guys make, The guys make fun of me. They said Cookie's the only guy we know that can go into an uh, antique mall, and the first thing you know is he tips his head back and smells because he can smell that stuff. Yep. You know? And I can tell walking into a mall if they're going to have anything good or not within the first aisle I go down. I can say, well, I'm, I'm wasting my time here. Really? Oh, yeah. I can, I, I can spot a muffin tin across an antique mall, uh, a, a, a milk pitcher, uh, you know, uh, whether it's from a mess hall or the aluminum ones were used in the field, the porcelain ones and the stainless steel ones were used in mess halls. You're so passionate you're, about this that before we started, going back to the eggs, I know, ladies and gentlemen, we've had a lot of hot egg talk on this episode, but going back to the eggs, you <laughs> actually have the authentic wooden egg crates. You're not showing up in the, you know, the dozen styrofoam well, jumbo now, eggs from from kroger see that regional stuff yeah. i said kroger <laughs> well we're working right now a friend of mine i think it came from europe i'm not sure he's going to reproduce it because we i uh, think he's getting a uh, found a vendor for the cardboard we're going to use the template because uh we shipped fresh eggs from the united states to europe we've got proof of that but in the field, most of your eggs were a powdered egg. Okay. Okay. We just use, we just use fresh because we haven't found a good powdered egg substitute. I've used one. We've used the liquid eggs in a bag. We didn't. They were they were okay. But now my egg crates are from that era. They would have been nineteen and forty. And the reason people say, well, that's not. Army issue, no. 
But who's to say I didn't go to a farmhouse in France and rob a farmer of his egg crate and all these fresh eggs? Mm-hmm. And <laughs> I'm <know>? sure <laughs> I'm sure if you talked to a World War II vet, they'd probably tell you, trust me, there was no good substitute for eggs either with the powdered stuff. Right. Uh, I've, I've got a picture somewhere of a, uh, an infantryman in a uh, chicken house, a coop, a chicken coop, and he's put he's got some straw in his helmet, mm-hmm. and he's cramming every egg he can find down inside that helmet because you know where those eggs are going. Yep. He's going to cook those eggs in his helmet. Yes, sir. He'll take his liner out. He'll build a small fire, and he'll have scrambled eggs over, you know, or they'll put them in the bottom part of a mess kit and cook it over a low fire, and they'll they'll fry eggs. Yeah, those. Yeah, the yeah. But to get back to why we do it is because everybody here knows a fifty cal machine gun, a mortar, a BAR, a forty-five, the helmet, the web gear. And everybody said that comes into my field kitchen, the public that comes to the museums, the veterans' home. I go to veterans' hospitals and set up for an anniversary of the veteran or VA hospitals. And they'll say, "Well, we never knew this aspect of the war." And I said. This was a big part of the war mm-hmm. because everybody it, eats. It not only it, it, it kept our troops nourished. We had the best fed army in the world. Well, we still do. Yep. But the morale, if you it late at night and it was cold or snowing and just miserable, and you've been fighting all day, and if you could sit down, and I've had veterans tell me this, we would kill for a hot cup of fresh coffee and a piece of fresh baked bread. That's all you need. They would, they would, and a cigarette afterwards. That sure. that was, and they they got a fifteen or twenty or a thirty minute break from the war. They said it was just almost like being shipped back home for thirty minutes. Well, Byron, I want to thank and you for your put, time. His name is Byron Cookie Vineyard. He's from the Tri-State Living History Association, and I'm so looking forward to meet you in person and. Um, when I'm out there in Texas, we will uh, do a little follow-up interview. I'm so looking forward to seeing you out there. And kudos to you and your guys from driving from uh, Illinois out to Texas to do this. Um, I can't wait to meet you guys there. It's going to be a great weekend, and I'm looking forward to making some new friends. Baron, thank you for everything you do, sir, and uh, thank you for your time. Uh, you're welcome, and you will eat good out of my field kitchen. I promise you that. I'm looking forward to it, sir. Thank you so much. Okay. Have a good evening. Bye-bye.